Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome everyone to episode 14 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the fourth episode of season two. This one is all about Queen Ascot I of Anarchist, the Lady with the Mask. The overview first. Ascot is a daughter of Varfina I and is born in 259. She succeeds to the throne 284 at the age of 25 and reigns until 287 when she dies aged 28. She has one son born in 283. Coming to the throne at the age of 25 and dying at the age of 28, she certainly fits into the young monarch category, the informal name for the half-dozen monarchs around this period, and she really is a prime exhibit in this classification, never growing old and staying forever young. Ascot became monarch simply through the virtue of being on the spot when her brother, King Blemon, died, which perhaps doesn't really do her justice. Once her mother, Queen Varfina, whose reign we explored in detail in episode two of this season, had settled on Blemon as her successor, Ascot immediately positioned herself as supportive, quickly patching up relations with her brother and professing to be uninterested in the crown. The other two siblings, Tristan and Ishgar, chose the more traditional reaction to being passed over and stormed out of the palace immediately. Tristan retired to her country estate and Ishgar went off in a huff, declaring he was going to Jalox and never returning. During Blemon's reign, Ascot remained in the palace in the royal apartments and did her best to back Blemon's plans and projects. She laboured by his side during the Great Flood of 287, for instance and she stood by him during the Halenkis affair. Otherwise, she kept a very low profile during the time which she allied herself with the temple hierarchy. When Blemon died from his infected wound in 284, Ascot was at his bedside. Tristan was in the vast inland wilderness on a scale-hunting expedition, prompted by the recent conclusions drawn by heaven watchers who had been watching locations, making calculations based on sightings during the great heavenfall of 234, and she was well out of communication. Ishgar was presumably still in Jalox, nothing having been heard from him since he'd left, and no records mention his fate. This is a reminder, of course, that in these early days of Anarchist and the world below the war in the heavens, these days are wild and dangerous, and even a member of the Anarchistian royal family can disappear without a trace. How cunning was Ascot in this succession business? How much of her being on hand and ready to succeed to the throne if anything happened to Blemen, how much of it was deliberate and calculating? As usual, various sources have various views on this. The annals, the official view, make Ascot out to be humble and lacking any ambition at all, which would make her the most outrageously un anarchist of all time. 
Ambition is hardwired into the family and in nearly 2,000 years of history, the number of members of that family who don't evince ambition of one kind or another is vanishingly small. And if you fall on the nurture side of the nature-nurture argument, every detail of child-rearing that we have any knowledge of in the royal family emphasises the way that competition and striving were the bedrock of family life, for better or for worse. So the animal's notion of Ascot as humble and lacking ambition is a little disingenuous. From the moment that Plemon became king, Ascot became more and more involved with the temple, as mentioned earlier, and her careful and deliberate efforts here might be more useful in our divining her intentions. The temple, never being shy of fostering political connections, especially with the royal family, was more than happy to have Ascot on board as a secular contributor to their most senior deliberations. When Blemon died and the succession was up in the air, the temple's support of Ascot was crucial in paving the way for her to be crowned as queen. Was Ascot's aligning herself with the temple clever politics, or was she truly pious? The annals, of course, emphasise her devotion to temple rituals and prayers, but more scurrilous views abound. Thank goodness. I've mentioned Zofro's pastoral reflections before, the third century really obtuse allegorical poem. One section is devoted to a prominent figure in society who Zofro calls the Lady with the Mask. In a number of verses, Zofro mocks this woman for the way she presents one face to the world while keeping her true feelings to herself. But, but that's not all. She regularly hires people who look like her to do things she doesn't want to do or simply can't be bothered to, and that includes regularly going to temple services where it double fronts up, makes obeisance, chants the prayers and contributes gold. There's plenty about Zofro that's debatable, but there's nothing about this portrayal of the lady with the mask that rings untrue with what we know of Ascot. Incontrovertible evidence... Hardly, but food for thought. Regardless, in 284, at the age of 25, with the notable backing of the temple, Ascot was crowned, the coronation taking place in the new Grand Hall, which had been constructed in a recently completed wing of the palace, begun in the rule of Queen Varfina, and finally completed just before King Blemon died. This Grand Hall no longer exists, as it was demolished in the reign of Methan the Great in 938. But at the time it was an architectural wonder, in some ways a smaller version of the Hypogeum, with an impressive vaulted ceiling and intricately decorated pillars. Reign Highlights Major events in Ascot's reign? Well, since it was very short, it's not much of a highlights reel or the equivalent. Anarchist being anarchist, remarkable things happen remarkably often, and in Queen Ascot's reign, it's the rise of the Caronite heresy. The Caronite heresy began in 284, when a young woman, Carina Batildus, began preaching about the war between gods and demons, but her views were distinctly at odds with conventional temple teachings. She held the belief that the temple was either mistaken about the nature of the war in the heavens or it was actively concealing the truth. She claimed she'd been divinely vouchsafed the real state of this divine war and that the beings the temple claimed to be 
the gods, uh, the embodiment of wisdom, beneficence and goodness, were actually no such thing. They were evil. Their opponents, routinely called demons by the temple, were heroically resisting these malevolent patricians. And they were, in fact, brave, upright and altruistic, for they were not only fighting the evil gods for themselves, but for humanity. If the evil ones, as the Karenite heretics called the gods, defeated the demons, called the goodly ones by the Karenites, then they were hell-bent on descending to the world below the war in the heavens and destroying humanity. As you can imagine, the temple was unimpressed with this. Prophets seem to fall into two types. The first is probably the more recognisable. An old man, long grey hair and long beard, possibly after spending considerable time in the desert, fronts up with his visions and soon attracts a horde of followers. The second is less common, but equally attractive in a narrative sense. And that's the young woman who hears voices and is inspired to undertake a quest or defeat an enemy or such like. Almost always the origin of these sorts of prophets is shrouded in mystery, simply unknown, or perhaps it could be the standard sort of humble beginnings type of thing. Karina Batildas was different. Her past was well detailed and she made no secret of it. She came from a moderately comfortable merchant family with loving parents and siblings who were warm and supportive. Being of a spiritual but also an intellectual bent, when she was old enough her parents supported her wish to go to study at the temple in Anaquist. At this time, bright young people often went to the temple or the hypogeum to further their studies and as a result ended up in the temple hierarchy or doing further work in the hypogeum on magical theory or practice. Karina Batildas was conscientious with her studies, but her intellect was fierce, and she wasn't content with the neat responses she received from the temple teachers when she asked about what had already become dogma about the nature of the war in the heavens and the antagonists. No matter how often she was punished for what was perceived as impertinence, she kept asking questions about the origins of the gods and the origins of the demons, the nature of their conflict, and the possible ultimate outcomes. After three years of frustration, Karina Batildas had had enough. She rendered a particularly pig-headed and obnoxious instructor unconscious with a robust uppercut and left the prime temple. She didn't spend months in the wilderness exposing herself to physical hardship, deprivation and heat, or anything like that, but instead did her best to read everything she could get her hands on about the war in the heavens. This included philosophical views from Perrin, but also personal ruminations, diatribes that could be called ravings, as well as more thoughtful texts that she managed to find that were written by people like her. People who'd spent their time in the temple and had either been rejected, ejected, or they left of their own accord. Many of these writings were actually dangerous. To be found in possession of them was a crime in the eyes of the temple, and the temple could exact punishment for such lawbreakers as they saw them. Having come to her own conclusions about the nature of the war in the heavens and the substance of the gods and demons, Karina Batildas felt honour bound to bring the truth, as she saw it, to the world, and thus began her preaching career. 
itinerant preachers and self-proclaimed prophets had been part of life in the world below the war in the heavens since long before the formal establishment of the temple. And while the ecclesiastical authorities frowned on such unauthorised proselytising, as long as these itinerants stuck to the traditional temple teachings, nothing was done. Outright heretics, though, were another matter, and especially heretics who were flagrant enough to use magic. This was the issue with Karina Batildas. She had a natural affinity for magic and a freakish natural and untutored talent for exploiting scales and other artefacts that had fallen from the heavens. She had a way of combining scales in hitherto unusual series or, or small stacks and thus providing enough magical power to enable conjurations. And she used this power to speak to the heavenly beings. Of course, this was extraordinary in a number of ways. One minor consequence was that it provoked development in the whole area of magically-based communication, as adepts in the hypogeum and elsewhere saw a door being opened. And since they were the inquiring and curious sorts that these people usually are, they stepped right through. More importantly, though, Karina Batildas's use of magic was something the temple couldn't ignore especially as she roamed the countryside outside Anaquist, holding public rallies and prayer meetings, where she would draw on the power of scales to launch a dazzling display of lights and colours on makeshift stages. From the ancient texts, it's clear that this is the equivalent of a laser light show today, or perhaps a pyrotechnic display before the main act hits the stage. It's also clear that Karina Batildas was totally aware of what she was doing. Her prayer meetings employed more and more aggressive stagecraft to attract audiences. Once again, this drew the attention of the temple, but she couldn't really be accused of making herself a small target. Such razzle-dazzle, though, would have been easy for the temple to poo-poo, as the work of a poor, deluded soul, perhaps a mountebank, a charlatan, out to exploit the people, but for one fact. After gathering a crowd... Karina Batildas actually did talk to the dwellers in the heavens. The complete history of Anaquist, that laughably named 12th century collection of snippets, stories and anecdotes, includes an account of one of these prayer meetings. Details such as the exact date and location aren't part of this text, as it's more like someone's recollection, a memory of many years ago, but still vivid in the mind of this witness. I don't often quote sources at length, but this anonymous account is compelling and it gives us some insight into how Karina Batildas was able to build such a formidable following in such a short time and why the temple acted against her so promptly. I quote, The word had got around and so all the village was there that night, from tiny children to oldsters, some who had to be carried like Polo, the wheelwright's old man, who wasn't going to miss this for the world, even if she was as deaf as two posts. Wagons had been drawn up outside the inn to make a place for Karina Batildas to address us, and many a farmer had jostled to be the ones to supply them for the profit, so that one day, no doubt, they could tell their grandchildren that it was their wagon that the enlightened one chose to stand upon, the better to preach to the crowd, for what one wag called a travelling salvation show. But he was pelted with rotten vegetables, so there you have it. When the appointed time came, the prophet's inner circle came from the inn and surveyed the gathering, which was hundreds by now, 
people coming from outlying areas to be part of the occasion, or not to miss out, more than likely with some. One of the inner circle went back into the inn and fetched the prophet. Karina Batildas mounted the wagon. She was a small woman, or so I remember, and her hair and her skin were a great contrast. She wore a plain white smock which covered her arms, but her feet were unshod. Unshod, I said to my wife, but see how they're clean and unsoiled. It's a miracle, at which she called me a ninny. See how she has only trod on paving stones freshly swept? She has no soil to soil her, she said, which is truly neither here nor there to tell you the truth. Karina Batildas did not have to call for attention or ask for silence. The crowd hushed as she gazed upon us, her hands clasped, her eyes kind. She was smiling too, as if she were among friends, and I do believe that we all were, at least at that moment. Her retinue carried out three contraptions, round discs of wood with short metal rod embedded in the centre of each, so that, that they would stand proud when placed in front of the prophet. Then came the chest, and everyone around me sighed as she opened it to reveal the glow of scales. Not just ordinary scales, mind you, the sort we might see here and there in the village when an adept would visit to sell their craft for this and that. Though these were powerful scales, and I declare that I could feel them throb even from where I was, by the well, a stone's throw from the prophet. My wife called me a clod and said what I was feeling was my own foot nervously tapping, which I must admit has been a habit of mine ever since the cow stood on it. Karina Batildas held up a scale so we could see it. It was the size of her palm, but flat, of course, and a wonderful shimmering silver colour it was, which must have a name more perfect, but such things are beyond me. A hole it had right in the middle, and this allowed Karina Batildas to slip it over one of the rods sticking up in front of her. It settled, as if it were pleased to be there. For some time, how long it was, I had no idea, because time was a strange thing that evening. Karina Batildas took scales from the chest and placed them on the rods, building towers, if you like, of multiple colours and sometimes sizes. She frowned now and then, and took a scale from its place and tried it on another rod before she was happy. When she was done, she smiled at the scales, then at us, and the wonders truly began. I've heard tell of colours that march in the skies if you go far enough south, and I've seen rainbows glorious enough to make me weep. Take the best of them rainbow colours, blend them with the colours from the far south, then add a host of sparks that fly from the blacksmith's work, and you'll get some notion of one smallest part of what wrapped around the prophet. Brilliance flared and flashed in front of the old tavern, lighting it up all the way, and the buildings, and all our faces, and the light made the shadows run away, then come back, then run away again as the lights rose and fell and rippled, as if an unfelt wind could take light, shred it, and then twist it around and around. And even as I tell you this, I know that I can't put it into words that are good enough. My mouth hung open, and I wasn't the only one. No one spoke, we only gasped and laughed for it was full of joy and excitement. Nothing dark could exist when there was such light, and the night had gone home for a rest when Karina Batildas held sway. Eventually, and to the disappointment of all, the light died with a wave of the prophet's hands. For a moment she sagged a little, 
But one of her retinue was there with an arm for her to hold and a tankard of something refreshing from the inn. With a grin, she toasted us before drinking and we cheered, for we were all proud of our local ale. Once refreshed, she regarded us solemnly and told us it was now time for her to talk to the goodly ones, our true friends and protectors in the heavens. Now, we'd heard tell of the prophet's beliefs about what's going on upstairs and how it was different from the temple preachings. Some in the temple frowned at her, saying the opposite, if you like, of what we'd been taught for an age or two. Most, though, were happy to listen, because the temple didn't hold a lot of sway out our way, and the whole matter of gods and demons was open to debate, if you like. You see, the temple mostly had nothing to do with our village, maybe sending us someone to preach a couple of times a year. And when I say preach, it was usually pretty dull stuff about being good to each other and treating people well, which isn't something we really needed someone from the temple to tell us since we could work that out for ourselves when all's said and done. Still, it meant that the preacher could ask us for money when she was finished. And while I'm not saying that was their main reason for visiting, others might. So when the prophet closed her eyes, held her hands out to her sides and addressed the scales in front of her, asking if anyone was there, all of us craned our necks, leaned forward and wanted to know what was going to happen. And that was when a voice came from the air, or from the scales most likely, and it was a voice that could only come from the heavens. No human voice was so perfect, so warm, so trustworthy. Of course, if I was a demon, I'd do my best to sound trustworthy, I suppose. The voice told us that the temple had it wrong and that it had been lying to us. What it called gods were actually evil and trying to come down here and slaughter us all. Only what the voice called the goodly ones stood between these evil ones and our destruction. The voice told us to listen to the prophet and to ready ourselves. Then it stopped just like that and Karina Batilda's fainted. All in all, it was the best night I'd had for an age or two. As an aside, this is the only time we have a record of Karina Batilda's being called the Enlightened One. And whether it was in common parlance or merely an inspiration of this witness, we have no idea. With this sort of show and the following she soon gathered, Karina Batilda's was a thorn in the side of the temple. She was officially named a heretic in the summer of 284, and Queen Ascot supported the temple in this proclamation. For some time, however... Karina Batildas evaded capture by the temple authorities, and although whether this was clever tactics by her or simply disorganisation on the part of the temple is unclear. In the autumn of 285, however, matters came to a head when Karina Batildas marched on the capital with the aim of bringing the truth to the prime temple, declaring that the truth would drive out the falsehoods from the past and all would see the error of their ways. Going from village to village, she attracted more and more followers, soon swelling, so an army, a peaceable army, was descending on Anaquist from the north. When the Karenites reached Lowtown, more people joined the throng. Reaching the gates of the stronghold, it was greeted with a herald who granted Karina Batildas an audience with Queen Ascot. The fact that Karina Batildas hadn't actually sought an audience with the Queen was glossed over. Perhaps guileless, perhaps overly trusting, Karina Batilis went to the palace 
where she was immediately seized and handed over to the temple, after which she was ritually drowned, the traditional punishment for heretics. The Karenite heresy faltered with the death of its leader, but it never went away, appearing here and there through Anarchistian history right throughout the continent, despite the best efforts of the temple to suppress it. Rumours suggesting that city-states exist in the uncharted interior where the Karenite dogma is established and accepted as the truth about the way the world works. Queen Ascot dies at the age of 28 without really achieving much other than helping the temple consolidate its power in Anarchist, perhaps inadvertently. She died of indigestion, according to the annals, and since her son Hotch was only four years old, his aunt Tristan, Ascot's sister, stepped up and assumed the throne, as she said, for the good of the realm. The swiftness that all this happened, and the way that Tristan appeared to be extremely well prepared for the occasion, could point the finger at the indigestion Queen Ascot suffered, maybe having causes other than bad food. Queen Ascot, she waited her chance, took it, and then had little time to enjoy the fruits of her patience. That's all for episode 14 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. Next episode, we have a thematic special, Jalox, the Isle of Wind, Water and War. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell.